Welcome to the One Bite Vegan Food for Thought Summit, a series of 15 podcasts that present different aspects of a vegan lifestyle from some of the most prominent thought leaders in veganism. Perhaps you want to learn how to be a better advocate for animals. Maybe you want to feel confident about raising your family on a plant-based diet. Proudly sponsored by VegFund, the One Bite Vegan Food for Thought Summit's for you. Hello and welcome to the One Bite Vegan Food for Thought Summit. I'm your host, Emma Leticia, and in this episode, we're talking to activist, author, and speaker for all species rights, Robert Grillo. Robert is the founder and director of Free From Harm, a nonprofit dedicated to helping end animal exploitation. As a communications professional for over 20 years, Robert has had the opportunity to work on large food industry accounts where he acquired a behind-the-scenes perspective on food branding and marketing. His recent book, Farm to Fable, The Fictions of Our Animal Consuming Culture, explores the powerful narratives driving our culture of mass animal consumption. And we're going to chat a little bit more about some of the insights Robert shares in Farm to Fable right now. Hi, Robert. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Emma. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Before we get started talking about Farm to Fable, can you tell us a little bit how you became vegan yourself? Sure. Yeah, I became vegan in 2009, and it was really just kind of a overnight type of thing for me. It's not something I felt like I had to give a lot of thought to or a lot of preparation for. I had seen footage from undercover investigations that were I found very disturbing, and I acted on it, I guess you'd say very impulsively, because it, intuitively or impulsively, I knew it was wrong, and I knew that I couldn't support those industries. And so it wasn't a difficult decision. It wasn't a baby step type of situation. It was just like, you know, this is what I have to do. And then six months into it, I thought what was interesting was that six months into it, I looked back and realized that I was fully vegan and that I hadn't really even given it all that much thought or, you know, looked back and kind of chuckled like as if, wow, that wasn't that hard. And compared to like other things that life throws at you, like changing your diet in that way, your diet and lifestyle choices isn't that difficult on the surface. Of course, you know, then when you get into it more and you have to navigate the difficult relationships with friends and family and Mm -hmm. things like that, then there's a psychological and social dimension to being vegan that rears itself and becomes challenging for many of us. But I've always been the kind of person that never worried about standing out or being different or wanting to even be part of a social clique or anything. I always kind of wanted to be my own person. So the social pressures were never an issue for me. And so, yeah, I've been a happy, fairly healthy vegan for about 10 years. And obviously, after that, you started Free From Harm. For anyone that doesn't know about Free From Harm, can you explain about the work you do? Sure. So today, 10 years in, Free From Harm is a nonprofit that has focused a lot of energy and effort on grassroots activism as a tool for change and to encourage, inspire people into grassroots activism, especially here on a local level where I live, which is in Chicago, but also to get involved in national and international types of actions, which we could talk about a little later if you'd like. But also our online presence continues to be strong. We've had a strong social media presence from the beginning, or developed it over the years, I should say. 
and we keep that going pretty strong. You know, that's the digital activism aspect, I guess, of what we do. And after several years of that, I felt like I really needed to explore on the ground, front line kind of activism. And so that's kind of the direction I've taken things in the last, say, three years. And one of your recent campaigns was the Farmers Go Vegan. That's been quite powerful and successful as well recently, hasn't it? Oh, sure. Yeah, that's one of the most popular series of profiles and and content on our website and in social media. And, you know, the interesting thing about that is how it just keeps unfolding and how more people keep coming to the fore and telling us, you know, that they'd like to tell their story and and be featured on our website. And so there's, there's many, many people out there and there could be many others that are just kind of like on the threshold or not so comfortable about doing it, but really giving it a lot of thought. And I've had the great fortune of meeting recently Renee King, who's Rowdy Girl Sanctuary and the Ranchers Advocacy Program. And her and I just kind of organically connected because of the fact that we're both so, you know, she saw what we were doing in terms of highlighting these former animal farmers who have transitioned into an animal-friendly business or become activists or open a sanctuary, whatever the case might be. We just kind of organically became kind of friends over this. And now she's kind of introducing us to people that she knows that she's working with through her rancher's advocacy program. And they're offering their stories, sharing their stories with us. And um, so it's been a great resource for these kinds of stories. Yeah. And I think it touches on every aspect that it needs to really, because not only does it inspire maybe farmers that are thinking about making the switch to vegan farming or setting up an animal sanctuary instead, but it also gives a lot of hope to some vegans that kind of, you know, sometimes you look around and you think, oh, what hope do we have? I think it gives us a lot of hope, really, that people are capable of change. Yeah, you definitely hit the nail on the head there because I think even for the general public, it shows that, because most people seem to be resigned to the fact that I had a recent interview with WGN radio host, and he kept going back to this point of, well, you know, how do you think you're going to change society? How do you think this change is going to play out? I mean, you have so much resistance and, and this and that, and he kept going back to that point. So I brought up the fact that There's farmers themselves that have farmed animals and that they've had a major change of heart in their lives. To suggest that that's not possible or desirable, it works against change. I mean, that's a kind of a defeatist myth in a way that is designed to stifle change. And it's often parroted by the very forces of oppression that want to see things stay the way they are. And if we really were to believe that change wasn't possible, then we'd probably still be living in the dark ages. We have so much to thank, I think, for people who've done so much work and sacrifice to change society for the better that have come before us. And we just kind of, it's amazing how we just take that for granted. Yeah, that's true. And so I guess this kind of leads into part of what inspired you to write From Farm to Fable. Right, yeah. 
I've always wanted to write a book about, I guess, what I call the fictions. Some people would call them myths or fallacies or whatever, but I decided to call them fictions. But I think anyone who's been vegan and who puts themselves out there finds the same kind of justifications and the same kind of responses from people that aren't vegan or considering it or from the media. Like, you know, the same, you know, we see a headline and we're like, oh, okay, that's going to be one of those stories that tries to tell us how dangerous a vegan diet is for children. Or we see these patterns and these patterns were striking to me. And, you know, having worked in marketing and branding, I'm very sensitive to this, to the language and the visuals that go into creating these narratives that are used to perpetuate our animal consumption and our attitudes about animals, the animals that we consume. And so it has been a fascination of mine for years. And so when I was asked by vegan publishers if I was interested in writing a book on it, I accepted. I didn't look around for book deals or anything like that. I had never written a book before, and I just decided, okay, yeah, this must be the right time to pursue this. And so that's kind of how things came together with that. Yeah, and from all the examples of the fictional stories we're told about consuming animal products that are featured in the book, which one do you feel is the most dangerous and why? That's a great question, and it's one that As hard as it is to just focus on one, I still always come back to the fiction of consent. And what I mean by that is that we assume that animals are consensual in their exploitation and killing, so that the only obligation we have is to treat them with a modicum of respect which is why humane washing is such an important narrative in animal agriculture. It's a really just a distraction to me from the idea that animals never consented to begin with. So the fact that you're switching the discourse to humane treatment means that you're ignoring the fact that they have no choice or no interest in being exploited to begin with. So there's no consent. But the myth is there and the assumption is there that they're here to serve us. And until we start questioning that issue, we will continue being distracted by humane washing. Also in the book, you mentioned how since the beginning of our recorded history, humans have used these narratives of animals choosing to sacrifice themselves for the greater good and how we have made up elaborate rituals around the killing of animals for food as a form of repentance and absolution of guilt. How do you still see that being part of people's psyches and being played out today? Yeah, so like at the Thanksgiving meal, or it's, there's so many modern rituals that, that play on that, and we thank animals for sacrificing their lives for us so that we can be nourished, and we still hear that today a lot. And I think Thanksgiving is just a, you know, a great example of a modern ancient ritual in which we have all this warm and fuzzy kind of branding and stories about the pilgrims and the founders of the country. And it looks like they probably didn't, you know, exploit turkeys. <laughs> we know that they didn't exploit turkeys the way, the way we do today, but they may not e- even really eaten them as a meal of thanks. So the history has gotten really twisted. But yeah, I mean, those... Thanksgiving is a great example, I think. 
And your book also points out to the kind of marketing budgets that the animal agriculture industry has to target consumers. I mean, we're talking yeah. annual budgets of over a billion US dollars. What does this mean for organizations that have nowhere near that budget that are trying to affect change? Like, how can we kind of compete with those types of resources? Yeah, you know, money isn't everything. I mean, it does a lot, but it's not everything. And the one thing that, that we have on our side is, and hopefully will continue to grow, is a movement built on, you know, we have an activism community that can challenge the status quo and that can challenge corporations and the governments that support them through clever and creative activism that gets the media's attention, that gets the public's attention. And I really think that um, there's great hope in how that could develop, like it has in other movements, like what's happening with Extinction Rebellion in Europe. So I think that's where our movement is going to evolve into a, a political kind of movement that aligns itself with other movements like the environmental and climate movement. So there's lots of talk right now about a big two-week action in October that Extinction Rebellion is doing with a number of different animal rights groups. It's like the first time I've heard of a major campaign in which environmental activists and animal rights activists are coming together and mobilizing around a, a common cause. So I think that's where I see the greatest hope. And as a vegan living in a non-vegan world, it often feels as if people don't really care about animals, but your book points to research that argues otherwise. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and how that should shape our promotion of veganism? Without citing any specific stats or sources, I just think that all we really need to look at is the preponderance of humane washing in our society that comes from corporate branding, that comes from everywhere. It's permeated, like I say in my book, it's permeated everything that we come in contact with, films and TV shows and the news and the media, books, children's books, so that why would this humane washing be necessary if it were not for the fact that we're moral agents and at the core of our beings we're concerned about our conduct especially when it comes to harming others when we don't have to we have to have a very good reason to harm others i think that's generally accepted in our society so if our morality wasn't important if we really didn't care none of this humane washing would be necessary the billions of dollars that advertisers and marketers spend on trying to make us feel good about consuming products of violence and killing would not be necessary. And quite often you hear people say, you know, don't show me the videos of the slaughterhouse. I can't watch that. People do love animals. You know, it's evident with their dogs, their cats, their pets. And that's where the humane washing makes it very convenient for people to turn a blind eye and feel good about consuming animal products, you're right. What is one of the biggest mistakes that you see most vegan or animal advocacy groups doing in trying to change people's behavior and what could they perhaps try instead 
That's a hard one to answer because I certainly have a lot of compassion for you know people that are somewhere on a journey or somewhere on a, a spectrum of developing where they are. It's hard to say. I mean, I think we like the free from harm. We like to encourage and inspire people into different kinds of activism because we think it's very empowering and it helps people feel a sense of community with other like-minded people and also makes them feel like their voice has power and that it matters. And I think what we love to hear from the people that join our actions or get involved is how valuable it was for them and how they'll never forget the experience and they want to do it again. When's the next one? Because it fulfills them. It makes them feel like they're doing something that, that is really making a difference. So we just, we like to encourage that as much as possible. And I know that there's some people in our movement that think that activism doesn't matter, that the only thing we should really do is talk to friends and family and people that we know about why they should change their diets. But I mean, we're never going to have a mass movement. We're never going to see a major shift in our culture unless we, we use activism to our advantage, just like any other social movement. So that's the one attitude I don't understand that I see sometimes in people that are vegan, that we shouldn't embrace activism that we know already works, that has already worked for other movements. To me, that's a hugely missed opportunity. That's interesting. Also, as you point out, you speak about in the book, it can be difficult if you're wanting to support financially one of the various animal advocacy organizations. For those people who maybe want to support activism, but they can't afford to be so physically active themselves due to whatever reason, what advice would you give them in terms of how to choose an organization to support is there any kind of criteria that indicates that an organization would be effective? That's an interesting question because I think that part of what we do at Free From Harm and other groups that I feel that we are aligned with are actually trying to move people beyond just thinking that they can donate as a form of activism or in place of as a substitute because I really think that even if you're not physically able to show up for things, you can sit at home and do a lot of things that are what could be considered activism, like picking up the phone and calling someone or your elected official or there's so many different aspects to it. And obviously organizations need money to run campaigns. And to a certain extent, that's important. But, you know, to me, it's not terribly important because I never want to become an HSUS or a PETA. I never have any ambitions that Free From Harm would become a large organization that relies on funding, a lot of funding. I'm happy with the funding sources that we have now and that we're able to carry out our projects. And sure, you know, we'd like to see them expand, but that, that means people getting involved and not necessarily giving money, but getting involved in our campaigns. Does okay. that, I know that doesn't really answer the question. No, but, but that leads us kind of nicely into my final question for you, because you've got a, you come from a creative consultancy background and you've very successfully used your talents to create free from harm. 
then what advice would you give to others to encourage them in using their own unique gifts and talents to promote veganism? Because like you say, you know, maybe someone can't show up physically to an event, maybe that puts them well out of their comfort zone, but they could write a letter to an editor, they could do some online activism or something. What advice would you give to those people to how to tap in and find out what their strong point would be for activism? I think I would say that I would look to see what you might have locally in terms of groups that you would like to support and then find out if you can perhaps volunteer. There's so many behind the scenes things that are needed like to run anything, like to create an event and all the details behind it. There's so many things going on behind the scenes that where volunteers are needed. If you're a good at accounting or bookkeeping, that's always needed. Writing, of course, graphics, promoting and marketing is always, those are always great resources for nonprofits. So there's tons of stuff I think that people who can't get out or can't physically show up for an event can do in terms of volunteering. I always just say, you know, what are you good at? What are your skills? And and then see if they can intersect with what's needed from some group that you admire. Thank you for that. That's really great advice and very practical too. I'm sure that the listeners can find something from that to help with their own activism. And on that note, that brings us to the end of this episode. Robert, thank you so much for talking with us and sharing your insights that you've discovered in your work. Thank you very much for having me, Emma. It's been a pleasure. If you'd like to learn more about Robert's work, where to order fun to Fable and find out how to support Free From Harm, please click on Robert's bio link in today's email. You'll find details on his website plus links to his social media accounts too. Finally, thank you so much for listening and being part of the One Bite Vegan Summit. Remember, one bite is all it takes to make a change. Thank you for listening and being part of the One Bite Vegan Summit. Be sure to keep up to date with the latest One Bite Vegan online events and free resources, including the One Bite Vegan blog and digital magazine by connecting with us via our website, onebitevegan.com. Remember, one bite is all it takes to make a change.